Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Tara Isabella Burton, a journalist and author who writes about religion, secularism, and culture. Her latest book, Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians, explores the human tendency to project particular images of ourselves. I'm grateful to speak with her about the impulse behind self-making, what it says about us and our culture, and how technology is intensifying this instinctive human tendency. Tara, thanks so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Let's start with the book's title. What is self-making, and how does it link desperate figures like Kim Kardashian and German Renaissance painter Albrecht Dürer? So self-making obviously has many facets, but I think the thing that unites all of the self-makers in my book is this idea that one's own life, one's identity, is something that the human being has the not just the right, but maybe even the obligation to to shape like a work of art. That um, both our public persona and our destiny uh, exist for us to choose and to shape. And I argue in the book that this is a quintessentially modern idea. Uh, We see, I mean... We see, particularly from the Renaissance onwards, the genesis of this sense that there are some people, special people, who have the the right or the authority to choose their own destiny. And we see that idea uh, transform over the centuries into what I argue uh, is the kind of ideology today that this is some this is just how we are all uh, in the miasma of culture in 2023 in the U.S. Uh, trained to think about our lives. And Canada, for that matter. (laughs) (laughs) One of the book's key thesis, as you just said, is that for all of the talk about the contemporary tendency to commodifying ourselves, it actually represents an historical tendency that finds its origins in the Renaissance. It begs the question, Tara, how did we understand the human person in the Middle Ages and what happened to it in the Renaissance? So the, the caveat I have is that any kind of summation is always a little bit reductionist. But that said, um, largely speaking, the, the medieval Christian view of the world, let's just talk about sort of Europe. Uh, let's, let's make sure we're not being too global here. But um, the idea that the self was fundamentally created by God and that the self sort of social imaginary was part of that createdness. So if I'm born a king or born a peasant or born in a uh, Burgundy or born in uh, Nuremberg, um, that 
this is part of who I really am. This is part of what has been chosen for me. And the that God sort of God as creator is the author of our lives. And what it means to be a good person is to accept oneself in what um, this is sort of a later theological term, but in one's givenness, in one's facticity. And there's a sort of rich tradition of this. I mean, the, mo the most sort of obvious uh, example of this to perhaps modern day readers would be like the divine right of kings. Uh, but more broadly, um, you find this in, in, in Thomas Aquinas and other medieval theologians, there's a sense that there, there is a kind of law of how things work and it unites the natural, the what we might now think of as the scientific natural order and the social order. These are these are parts of the same coin of a holistic unity. And really in the Renaissance, uh, and then particularly a little bit later in, in the European Enlightenment, that assumption starts to change drastically. And I always say that the story of self-making is it's a theological story. And I mean, part, part of the reason I say that is that I'm a theologian. So, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> but it is, a, it is a story about who is the author of our lives. Is it God or is it us? You point to secularism as a key condition for the rise of self-making. It has created the conditions for an almost godlike sense of self. You write in particular, quote, we are creators of ourselves, of our lives, of the world around us. We take on the divine role of constructing and shaping reality, unquote. Let me ask a two-part question. First, how has secularism contributed to a culture of self-actualization? And second, is there evidence that more religious societies are less consumed by self-making? So to answer your first question, um, I want to push back against the language of secularism, uh, not because because I think that a perhaps a more precise way of framing the argument I want to make is that the sense of the religion, a sense of religion has moved from orthodox, lowercase o, orthodox, traditionally understood, organized religion to something a little bit uh more diffuse and self-directed. I, I don't think we're living in a necessarily a secular age. And this is this is sort of the argument of my, my, my first nonfiction book, Strange Rights. But that said, I think that the the major um the major change is this sort of divinization of elements of human desire in particular, uh the human will, human wanting as a uh, constitutive of who we really are. So from the Renaissance um, onwards, we see these sort of cultural shift, not just in, in the role of organized religion, which is its own story, the story of the authority of particularly the Catholic Church and the idea that one should not be told what to do by these traditional uh, arbiters of authority, church, monarch. Uh, and that is certainly part of the story. But at the same time, we see these sort of outcroppings culturally of the idea that the self who ha is a self-maker, the self who controls his destiny, and it is usually him, at least until the 20th century, um, that this is a kind of spiritual, magical power. And often the language of, of magic is really um, front and center from the Renaissance onwards. And so the idea is less that sort of secularism, the, the very simple version or the, the perhaps too simplistic version, is in the absence of the power of the Pope, the ecclesiastical hierarchies, people create their own destinies. And I think the slightly more complicated version of that argument is that the, the act of creation, 
is the act of human beings wanting something and going for it is increasingly understood as the most sacred part of ourselves. One might say the thing that makes us us. And so it's a relocation of the divine and divine authority from something out there to within the human creative spirit. Now, to answer your second question. Tara, my interject, and let's pause the second question for a second, because I want to follow up on your insights there, and in particular, the limits of thinking about this trend as a secular one. There's a common tendency increasingly in a lot of commentary to attribute religious dimensions to what appear to be secular trends. You'll be familiar, for instance, with the idea that so-called wokeism, however one describes it, has religious characteristics. As someone who's thought and written about religion, what are the similarities and differences between self-making and a more traditional religious faith? So one of the things that traditional organized religion has historically done uh, very well while doing other things, perhaps less well, is understanding that human desire, what we want, uh, A, sometimes it's bad for us, B, sometimes the things we think we want, uh, we don't actually truly want. Um, this is sort of, I, I think, a quite established part of quite a lot of religious traditions. Uh, human Human beings are pretty self-deluding creatures. And we need certain uh, restrictions against our immediate impulses in order to be the fullest beings that we ought to be. Uh, in the Christian tradition, there's a lot of language of the bondage of sin, such that true freedom involves being free of these internal restraints. Increasingly, I think uh, that idea has fallen out of fashion, um, that we are more likely to think of the, the things getting in the way of human goodness or human flourishing to be external forms of tyranny, be it uh, societal repression, be it certain forms of injustice. And I think increasingly there's this sort of quite capital R romantic notion that if we could only kind of free ourselves from these toxic outside influences, outside restrictions, we could be truly free, truly ourselves. And um, I think that that is something that is perhaps particularly late 18th, early 19th century onwards, I'm thinking of someone like Rousseau here, but and particularly in the American tradition is uh, all the more salient. But I think that we are more likely, culturally speaking, to treat our intrinsic desires, our intrinsic feelings as valid, to use a, a, a common kind of um, colloquial term, um, but as, as authoritative sources of a certain kind of truth. Um, and I think we are less comfortable with the idea, um, in most cases, that our desires are, A, not things we can truly access, and B, might be misdirected. So with that, if I can come back to my earlier question, based on your research, is there evidence that more religious societies, even today, are less consumed by self-making? Uh, yes and no, which is to say, uh, what does it mean to be a religious society? I'm thinking uh, of a lot of uh, Europe, culturally religious European countries where belief in God, self-reported belief in God is very low, but where um, certain cultural forms of religious observance are still very prominent and popular. 
So I think it's probably fair to say that societies that are still sort of culturally very religious or in other ways sort of hierarchical do tend to be more resistant to self-making. And I, whereas uh, conversely, America, the place of certain kinds of, you know, a very religious country in some ways, but culturally deeply, deeply rooted, even, even as a religious country in kind of the evangelical tradition and certain kinds of Protestant emotion, emotive visions of, of freedom rather than, say, Roman Catholicism, that there, that America is absolutely the apex of self-making. The book mostly works hard not to pass judgment on the people and ideas that it's exploring. How should we think about self-making as a normative matter? Is it good or is it bad or does it depend? How have you come to think of it after having worked on the book? I think that I'm very suspicious of self-making as the cultural default for all of us while recognizing that it is not, not only is it not all bad, it has certain kinds of liberatory potential. I think it's impossible to look, for example, at the speeches of Frederick Douglass on self-making and his ideal of uh, a country, uh, all the more uh, robust and, and, and moving an ideal, given that he himself was born in, in slavery in, the, in that country, of uh, a world where one's own merit, one's own efforts, rather than one's, one's race or one's father's name uh, could determine one's own life. And that is still like that is enormous liberatory potential and uh, should not be discounted. I absolutely do not think we should go back to the divine right of kings. That said, I think that at some at some point, although I don't think there was one particular watershed moment, the valorization of this kind of personal self shaping over and against the role that one's social bonds and communal bonds might play in determining one's identity has pushed the pendulum too far. And so my concern about self-making is not necessarily that, you know, we're all taking too many selfies, but that <laughs> we're, I mean, I, I am also concerned about that, <laughs> but that the relentless process and quite individualistic process of shaping our own identity for on and profit, whether from social capital, whether we're trying to sell ourselves in the job market or sell ourselves uh, on a dating site or sell ourselves in social media. Um, all of this comes from this, I think, quite worrying tendency to think like, we are just commodities and we can just make ourselves the best version of ourselves uh, to have the things that we want to have which themselves are not kind of externally determined. You know, we we choose our own fate, we choose our own desires, we choose or expect to choose, um, you know, be whoever you want, be your best self. And I think that we've, what, what's so moving about Frederick Douglass, who, who in my book I say is perhaps the like best, you know, he is the steel man of self-making. Um, his his art, you know, he is working within a virtue ethics tradition. He's working within their we are cultivating ourselves for the common good by cultivating ourselves as as you know, our form of self-making is what allows us to have self-governance because we are we are growing in virtue. And that's that again sort of sounds perhaps a little bit dated, like the, the language of virtue is perhaps dated in the modern world, 
But I think precisely a sense that there is something outside of our own wanting is, is what's been lost. And you can even see that in the 19th century, you know, just a few short decades after Douglas's vision of self-making, which is about the virtuous statesman, the, the, the who teaches himself to read and, you know, become perhaps becomes a gentleman, becomes middle class, has a decent standard of living. But ultimately, his con- the self-made man is someone who contributes to the community. And then by, you know, the 1890s, the self-made man is the entrepreneur who makes all of the money in the world and is wildly wealthy and, you know, works hard, but doesn't doesn't necessarily. The the money is a kind of reward slash goal, whereas the earlier vision of a self-made man was a vision of a kind of civic belonging. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. There's certainly a distance from Frederick Douglass to OnlyFans, which we'll, we'll come to later. But I do want to ask a bit about how the notion of self-making is wrapped up in the American psyche and the society's own self-image. And in particular, sorry, as I was reading the book, I thought about the idea of human agency or personal agency and how that has been part of the American story, particularly when it comes to economic and technological progress. Is a degree of self-making necessary to enable the kind of progress that America has been at the center of over the past two centuries? Yes, but it's a, a, a double-edged sword. Um, one of the really interesting kind of truths about the, self, the self-making myth, and particularly about the American self-making myth, is that there's always kind of two. There's always two parts to it, and one is the one that perhaps we think about most easily: the the innovation, the hard work, the you know the grit, the Horatio Alger narrative, and the other side of it is the idea of shaping public perception that if you can make people believe that you're a genius, an entrepreneur, an innovator, uh, reality kind of gets shaped around the shared belief of others. And um, the story that I, that I start the chapter on the Gilded Age with, which is one of my favorite stories, is the fact that before Thomas Edison invents the light bulb, he kind of fakes inventing the light bulb. He, he, it doesn't stay on um, for, for more than a few minutes Everyone's expecting him to come out with it. He hasn't yet figured out how to make it stay on. So he brings in the press one at a time for a top secret exclusive, you know, uh, you're one-on-one with the light bulb and brings them in. They see the light bulb, they marble, and he gets them out before it goes out. And so the press report, uh, because he has this very cozy relationship with the press and he's always bringing journalists in and doing kind of publicity stuff, it is reported that he successfully invents the light bulb the film before he actually does. And that, you know, that kind of sense that part of what it means to be a self-maker in, in the way that we kind of colloquially think of it, the, the hard work and the grit, is 
the ability to convince people of things or take a certain role in the shaping of the social imagination. Um, that is that is also very much part of the American tradition. Think of uh, P.T. Barnum, for example, uh, Barnum and Bailey, a, a notorious hoaxer who believed that the American public needed a little bit of humbug. So I think that it's impossible to look at the the best of the dream of American hard work and innovation without recognizing that a degree of uh, populist humbug is often historically at play. And in fact, more often than not, it's not just there is an innovator and, and there's a charlatan and these are different people or even people or one person doing two different things. It's that the ideology of shaping, of uh, the ideology of presenting oneself a certain way actually becomes dominant um, by the time we're getting to the sort of post-New Thought uh, self-help manuals, the ones that claim to tell ordinary people how to become the next Andrew Carnegie or Rockefeller. They're not saying, you know, just work hard. They're they're saying, picture yourself wealthy and uh, meditate upon your success and want it badly enough that it'll just come to you, that you're able to direct these energies uh, in the sort of proto, the secret, proto law of attraction, proto manifesting fashion, that you can shape reality just by, uh, use a modern term, tapping into the vibes of the universe. I would just say in parentheses, it's not lost at me as I hear you describe the duality between the innovator and the charlatan that we're speaking as Samuel Bankman Fried is about to go on trial for what in a lot of ways was a exercise in self-making. Well, we've discussed how self-making is far from new, the book and your accompanying commentary points to an intensification of this tendency in the modern culture of Instagram, OnlyFans, and so on. What explains its rise? Is it merely a process of the decline of traditional religion or is something else going on? Oh, the internet. I, or I think technology more broadly. I think we've got, we've got Hollywood and, and film, and then we've got television, and then we've got the internet. These three sort of watershed, basically 20th, early 20th century moments. And in each case, as the, um, the technology of self-presentation gets democratized, uh, as more in the case of the, you know, the, the, the sixties and seventies, as more people are getting like personal cameras and personal video camcorders, for example, all the way up into the, you know, the, the, the rise of the internet, the more access we have to the technology of disseminating ourselves as we would like to be seen, uh, the more normal this becomes. But I think the internet is a particularly salient example because um, the kind of tension between the tension of self-making is always a tension between one's one's givenness, one's situatedness in the world, and one's creative, imaginative ideal. I mean, that is, I mean, you could even also say, you know, that is that is literally the human condition. You know, Hamlet, Hamlet soliloquizes about it, where where one of the piece of work is a man. But that tension is kind of held in check up to a point by the fact that we are animals and mortal bodies and will die. And then suddenly we are able to plug into uh, a device very seamlessly. Um, uh, Anton Barbicay, who's a, a wonderful writer, uh, just wrote a book where he talked about the sort of natural technology of these devices where they kind of become extensions of our bodies. And we are able to be disembodied as we create a, a textual image-based reality that increasingly is where, where reality happens, you know, where certain kinds of news is made where certain kinds of political influence can take hold. 
uh, reality happens online in a certain way. And I think that this this intensifies the ultimate kind of implicit idea of self-making, which is that ultimately the the self-maker doesn't just shape his life. He shapes reality around him by often, you know, whether you're talking about Edison or you're talking about P.T. Barnum or you're talking about Kim Kardashian or Donald Trump, by making people believe something, by creating a reality that is that is shared, a social reality, reality does start to shift. And now we're all kind of subject to, especially post-pandemic, when we're more and more of us live more and more of our professional lives online as well as our, our social lives, our personal lives. Uh, reality does become a little bit more fungible. This might be a clumsy question. Bear with me. It's something I thought a lot about as I read the book. I understand that it's difficult to look into someone's mind, but how can we make judgments about whether his or her self-presentation is authentic as opposed to a reflection of what they might think people want or like, or perhaps is a character designed to provoke or whatever? I suppose, in other words, Tara, based on your research, what are some heuristics that we can use to try to understand people and the the degree to which they are projecting a self-image or letting us into their true self? I think that I I don't actually think that there's a real distinction there. So I don't think authenticity, uh, I think authenticity is an ideal, but it doesn't really exist. Um, I think all forms of kind of public presentation of ourselves are what we do as human language using animals is tell the story of ourselves over and over, whether it's through the clothing that we choose, whether it's through the words we choose are the accents we cultivate. And so I think that the idea, I mean, the very idea that there is some kind of true, untrammeled, authentic self that can be expressed through these potentially artificial or willed means, that the, the, act, of, the act of choosing how we present ourselves publicly is somehow a conduit to the true expression within. That itself is the modern ideal. That itself, the idea that there's like this this internal emotional us, and then there's this outside, there's the persona, and yet the persona is something that we can choose. I don't think any of us can can kind of get out of that cultural assumption. Oh yeah, maybe, so I think uh, I think the search for authenticity is a dead end. It seems to me that the rise of self-making as outlined in the book is occurred in parallel with, at least according to social science research, increasing levels of mental health issues and declining levels of happiness. Is there any cause or effect in your story? So with the caveat that I am not a, a social scientist, uh, I, I cannot imagine that there would not be, which is to say, anecdotally speaking, as an observer, I think that the idea that we have to present ourselves in a particular way that we are failing if we do not present ourselves well that there that if we do not become our best selves we have we have not only like not gotten the material things we want uh i i didn't become a an influencer so i didn't make a million dollars so i didn't get to buy myself i i don't know uh, i don't drive a, a ferrari that's a, that's, a, that's an expensive car um but the idea that the if if being human if the thing that makes us human is this ability to decide who we are and we somehow fail at becoming our aspirational selves we're failing at the thing that we're supposed to be doing that makes us human now i don't agree that this is the thing that makes us human or at least i don't think it's the only thing 
that makes us human. But I think that the more that self-defining, self-fashioning is held up as a cultural goal, the more that we think that we have to achieve our best selves, the more alienating the experience of failure would be. And of course, we are, I think, bound to fail precisely because the act of self-creation is is sort of rests on assumptions about human beings being purely creatures of of desire and creative power that I don't think is true to what human beings actually are, which is a mix of that freedom and vulnerability and interpersonal definition. We are as defined as made by other people as we are as we make ourselves. And I think that that communal element in particular gets lost. And I Perhaps it's it's sort of overreported. There's hammering about it, but the kind of the language of of uh, therapy speak is 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 everywhere these days, and everyone's practicing self care by canceling pl- plans. And to an extent, it's probably true of a particular segment of people, and 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 not necessarily like the apocalypse one might think. And yet, at the same time, I do think that there is truth in it, which is that I think we are uncomfortable seeing the parts of ourselves and our lives that we do not choose as as worthy in and of themselves that that they're sort of distractions from the part of our life we really ought to be focusing on and so illness or or certain kinds of of familial difficulties or certain kinds of of social or 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 um social or or biological vulnerabilities all of this these sort of lack meaning if they're only the things that are stopping us from doing that that real work of self-defining having interrogated these ideas in the book how have they changed the way you think about your own self i'm much more wary of the internet i have lots of blockers on all my devices so that i i can only access certain site you know social media for certain hours of the day um i think that backstory I, I was like one of those theater kids who loved Oscar Wilde and wanted to live my life as art and I, the book writing this book and researching this book made me more wary of that but I think it also made me want, want to hold on to the good of that uh which is and this is where I find um I actually find the 19th century dandies very moving uh a lot of them uh, Oscar Wilde in in, in England and 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 uh Dorfilly and later Charles Carl Hismont more of a writer than a dandy, but depending about dandyism in the in in France, they're all dealing with this kind of scary thing that's industrialization and the alienation that comes from you know everything being reproducible in this 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 newly increasingly urbanized world, and the dandy becomes this kind of figure of we are not reproducible, we are ourselves, and we are you know the obsession with 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 delicate fabrics that are that are hand embroidered is also kind of an obsession with not being someone who could be mass produced and i think that there is something universally true and all perhaps all the more important now in the age of deep fakes and ai and unlimited reproduction mechanical and digital alike the idea that we want to affirm as human beings that we are ourselves and that we are original and that we are we are always trying imperfectly to to express that. Um, 
I think we can hold on to that as a statement about what it means to be human, even as we criticize uh, a culture where this is no longer a kind of an, the art for art's sake affirmation, an affirmation that is not wedded to, or I- ideally not wedded to commerce, uh, but rather is part of our economic lives. Um, I, I still like to dress, I still like to dress up when I go out. And yet I find myself very wary of certain kinds of public presentation. Um, as, I mean, I, I, I love having conversations like this. I'm also a novelist. So, you know, I'm, I'm very online to sell my books a lot of the time. And I'm always very conscious that while I, I do enjoy talking about my work, I don't enjoy personal branding. I hate it, but I have to do it. But it has made me, I think working on this book has made me so much more aware of, all right, this is part of my job and now I'm going to do it. And then this is the time of my life or the elements of my life that are private, that are for interpersonal, you know, my, my, my friendships are not part of my quote unquote brand. And I think that strict division is something that this book has made me, um, has made me more aware of. So that said, I've got, I've got a novel coming out in a few months. So who knows? Maybe I'm just going to start writing personal <laughs> personal essays about my childhood. Uh, and I'm going to just leave us all behind and sell out. Who knows? If a listener wanted to resist the culture of self-making, in addition to internet blockers, what might he or she do? I mean, I think internet blockers is the big one here. Um, <laughs> I think, I think um, being very wary of... Uh, very wary of cameras. Very wary of phone cameras. Like don't post pictures only post you know maybe you want to share pictures with your friends maybe you want to share pictures with a small group of people that you care about but i think that there is no reason that anybody who does not have a specific professional reason to do so should have like photographs of their personal life for an unlocked audience uh, i think that is that is that is bad for it is bad for one's soul uh as it were i um i i remember being the, the, I have sort of an anecdotal, I have a dog in this fight. I remember when my first novel came out, I had a my own public Instagram and I never thought about it. Uh, you know, it was for my friends. I was in my 20s. And suddenly the kind of mix of personal and professional and realizing that, you know, my vacation pictures and pictures of my friends were suddenly for public consumption in a different way absolutely freaked me out. And I deleted that account and locked it down and all sorts of things. Uh, and now I think I, I do have an Instagram that is professional, uh, but I don't really use it about once every two months to have a picture of me holding my book and being like, I'm doing I'm, I'm doing this event. Uh, but but I try to keep those things really separate. And I think that the more we can do that, the better. Final question. Your answer and the book itself stands in some ways in a countercultural poise. What has been the reaction to its ideas and arguments? I've actually been really hardened. Uh, I think I was expecting much more blowback or controversy. Um, but I think that perhaps we are in an era of cultural exhaustion. And I, I think that there are very few people who are genuinely made happy by relentless personal branding. That doesn't mean we don't do it or that we don't feel compelled to do it or we don't have, you know, but I, I think that even, even when you're at a party and you see, you know, a bunch of people turning a corner of the party into a photo shoot for Instagram. And you talk to them and you're like, do you want to do this? Even, even like most people are like, no, no, I don't want to be doing this, but I don't know how to stop. 
so I think <laughs> I think we all know we're in trouble. Uh, that's a good place to end the conversation. The book is self-made, creating our identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. Sarah Isabel Burton, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>